Almost 2,000 years ago, on this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus began the climax of his public ministry in a dramatic way, on purpose. For three years of public ministry, Jesus had been living in a kind of tension. On one hand, over those three years, he provided incredible evidence of his messiahship to the people, to the leaders, through miracles, through masterful teaching, throughout all of Judea. He offered forgiveness that only God could offer to any sinner who would repent. And he courageously confronted the religious elite, did all this publicly. On the other hand, During that same time frame of three years, Jesus often acted and spoke as if he did not want his rightful claim to Messiahship to be known, to be boldly boldly proclaimed. When his own brothers in John 7 urge him to go public fully with his power and with his authority and, and with who he is, he says, any time's right for you but my time has not yet come. You might remember the first miracle in John at the wedding. His mother says, they've run out of wine, do something. He says, mother, my time has not come. Oftentimes we read after a healing, Jesus will strongly command those who he helped, who he healed, not to tell anyone what he had done. And sometimes you'll see that work. He strongly commanded them, don't say anything to anyone. So Jesus had been controlling the timing of his public disclosure in all of its fullness. And on this day, what we call Palm Sunday, after three years, Jesus stops nuancing. He stops trying to manage the timing of his full revelation of being Israel's Messiah before all the people. And he comes publicly to Jerusalem and accepts all the pomp and the circumstance that surrounds his coming. He accepts the crowd's affirmation that he is the king of Israel. This is a hugely climactic moment in the history of Israel. It's a hugely climactic moment in world history. The Messiah, the king of the world, has come to say without any apologies or any nuance, I am the Messiah, I am the king, I am the son of God and I have come for my people. And so this moment, this day, Palm Sunday, it's a moment we really wanna slow down and watch and listen carefully as Jesus, who has sovereignly controlled the timing of this announcement, shapes the announcement in a most particular and wonderful and powerful way. This is Matthew 21, Palm Sunday, starting in verse one. I will read to, I think, the end of verse nine. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Colts, a baby donkey. Untie them 
and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're quoting the Psalms that allude to the king, the Messiah of Israel. It's possible that this crowd made of so many from all kinds of places coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this important annual feast of the Passover that they numbered into the tens if not the hundreds of thousands. It was a lot of people. It was huge. And when Jesus reveals himself as king before this massive crowd, he purposefully takes that mantle not only in a way that fulfills prophetic scripture as he's done all throughout his ministry, fulfilling the word of God written hundreds and thousands of years before him, but in one specific way, he fulfills scripture in a way that qualifies the nature of his kingship particularly. And it's right there in verse five. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is appealing to an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9 where the prophet Zechariah has a vision of the king. He sees the Messiah coming to Jerusalem into the city, the daughter of Zion. And he's riding on the lowliest of animals a humble donkey, and not just a donkey, even more humbly, a small child of an animal, a fowl, foal. I shouldn't say it was a baby donkey, but it is a kid donkey. It's a young animal. Mark tells us it's not ever been ridden before. It's not even broken in. So Jesus comes into this great tumult, this incredible crowd, but he's also coming to a world of great contention. Many of the Jews are hungry for a political liberator, a powerful military liberator from the cruelty of Rome. The Pharisees, these, these, these establishment elites, they ruled the spiritual lives of the people with a heavy hand. They're angry at Jesus. They're deeply suspicious of him. They already know they want to kill him. The disciples, we, we see them jockeying for position, using their mother's ambition to facilitate their own ambition, to claim the closest proximity to Jesus as they think he's about to assume a, a enthronement over all of Israel. 
And in the midst of all this contention, Jesus rides in on a young donkey to highlight one particular thing about the nature of his kingdom and his heart. Gentleness. Gentleness. The famous English preacher, Charles Spurgeon, made the point that in all the New Testament gospels, in Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, there's only one place where he could find, and I, and I think this is true, where Jesus personally describes his own heart. There's only one place where Jesus personally says, this is my heart. And he does all kinds of actions. There's all kinds of adjectives ascribed to him. But there's one place where he says, this is my heart. What's at the very core of my being? And it's in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where you see him say, come to me all, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what's in Jesus' heart, particularly in his heart. And we should note that to Jesus, as a Jew, speaking to Jews in in the Jewish culture, the the Jewish conception of heart, it it meant much more than feelings. It, it, It was the very center of your being. Your heart was who you were. It was the wellspring from which the waters of all of your thoughts and all your feelings and all of your desires and all of your actions sprung up. Your heart is the deepest you that there is. So when the Lord says of his heart that it is gentle and humble, he's not talking about a certain season of his life where he especially embraced gentleness and humility or about the ability to exercise gentleness in a really hard time, like where otherwise he would be rigid and stoic and aloof. No, he is explaining who he is. He is explaining the the himest him there is. He is explaining what is eternally at the very core of God. Gentleness, humility, meekness, lowliness, And this word gentle here in the Greek, and I believe it's the same word used in Zechariah, it's praus. It's it's transliterated from the Hebrew into the Greek. But in Zechariah and Matthew, we see it as this word, this Greek word praus. And its meaning is parsed out in, in words that, well, when you hear gentle, you think of gentle. Words like meek, kind, mild, forgiving, benevolent, humane. Those are the words that surround that Greek word and explain what that Greek word means in our English words. It's related to another word, tepenas, this other part. He's gentle and humble. Tepenas is gentle. But these words are are interchangeable. Sometimes gentleness will be translated humble. Sometimes humbleness will be translated gentleness because they communicate very similar things. In particularly, Tepenos communicates this sense of a lowly estate, not a haughty high position, but somebody in a really low circumstance. 
It can even mean depressed. And it means timid. Its opposite would be puffed up, proud, haughty spirit. Jesus is the exact opposite of that. He is the exact opposite of haughty and proud and puffed up. Another word that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' gentleness is in 2 Corinthians 10, this word apekes. And this word is really beautiful. It, it carries with it the force of a judge who, who does not desire to exact the penalty against the guilty. But instead, he gives mercy. He delivers to those who would otherwise be crushed by condemnation. Mercy. That's the disposition of the heart of God and the heart of our Savior. There are other equally glorious things that can be said about Jesus and about the heart of God. But I don't think, I say with respect, I don't think there is anything greater, at least to me, that can be said about God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit than this. That, that he, the almighty, all-powerful, I am, who dwells in inapproachable light, that he whose pure holiness and righteousness, unless he intervenes, would, would inherently have to destroy sinners who looked upon him, who sits in such glory, that this same God is full of gentleness and humility and kindness and meekness of heart. I, I think this characteristic of gentleness, as much as any other characteristic of God, makes the existence of the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible self-evident. A God who is gentle and humble is a God that all people desperately need. A God who is gentle and humble is a God that we all want in our most honest moments. This is the God that we cannot survive without. If the world is a desert, this kind of God is an ocean of water to make that desert flourish. The God who is gentle and humble and meek and kind. We cannot survive without this kind of God. And as we grow in meeting and experiencing this kind of God, we recognize this is the God we were made for. This is the God that we were made for. This kind of God makes sense out of this otherwise broken, confusing, malicious world with lots of wonderful things, but lots of crushing things. But if, if this is the God at the heart of it all, designing it all, controlling it all, pushing it all towards a, a good conclusion, that makes sense, right? That he would do that because at his heart is gentleness and humility. That just tells you that he's a sane God. He's a reasonable God. 
He's a God you'd want to know and serve and love. He's a God you'd want to give your life to and have as your best friend. So I find this aspect of who God is is a great apologetic in my own heart because I know that I must be made for this kind of God. It's the only thing that makes sense out of this universe. As this final week begins on Palm Sunday and it moves forward for the Lord Jesus, he's days away from being treated with unimaginable cruelty by men. He's days away from also being crushed by God's just punishment for billions of sins he never committed to save countless souls who want nothing to do with him. And as he moves into this week, he'll manifest the gentleness and the humility that powers that kind of engine again and again if you walk through his week that he announces with gentleness and Palm Sunday, you will see that gentleness on great display. He spends the week of the last week before he's gonna be tortured by people and spiritually crushed by God for the condemnation of all people. He spends the week teaching the people of God's kingdom and continuing to heal the sick and the poor and the demon harassed. He, he, that's what he does this whole week until they throw him out, essentially. And he knows what's coming in days. The last day or two before the cross, what's he doing? He's mediating a conflict between his ambitious apostles by calling them to be like him, a lowly servant, and refuse to lord it over those beneath them on his way to be crucified. He gets down on his knees the night of his betrayal and he washes each of the disciples' feet. He takes their toes and their ankles and the soles of their feet and he puts his hands all over all their dirt and grime. The night he's about to be crucified to death. That's what he's doing. I mean, it's just, it really does make you stop, doesn't it? He knows that in hours, they're gonna nail his hands and his feet to wood. They're gonna scourge him, probably to within an inch of his life. He's about to taste hell for all people, and he is washing the feet of his disciples, saying, please, understand the nature of my heart and trust it and follow it. When the soldiers come to arrest him for a, a joke of a mock corrupt trial, one of the soldiers' ears is cut off in the battle. Jesus rebukes a disciple who does that and heals the man by miracle who is gonna take him by force to face his cruel executioners. And throughout his trial, after Jesus is punched in the face, had his beard plucked out, whipped by leather and bone and maybe stone in which strips of his flesh are flayed and pulled off of his back and his buttocks and his thighs and his chest 
in his abdomen. After he's crushed with a crown of thorns around his head where thorns are forced into his skull and made to carry his own wooden beams for his own execution. And then they've nailed his hands and his feet. And as he's hanging naked pretty much for all the world to be horrified by or to mock as both things happen to him. As his last few belongings, his, his cloak, the last earthly thing he has is stolen and gambled for in front of him. What does he do? This gentle and humble king. What's he doing? He's praying for people. For these same people. He's praying for them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He looks after his mom. He asks his disciple John, would you care for my mother? She's your mother now. Mother, this is your son now. I can't be your son anymore. I can't take care of you in your old age. That's what he's doing. He tells a grieving, dying, humbled, terrified thief who looks to him for mercy. He tells him not only, yes, not only will I not, will you be remembered, but this day you will be with me in paradise. Doesn't this have to be true? Can you tell that this must be true? As I read these words to you, my heart says, this has to be true. This is the only God who could exist. And of course, let's think, what is he doing there on the cross? What is this gentle and humble king displaying there that manifests and proves his gentleness and his humility? What, what mildness and humility of state, what, what, what lack of haughtiness, as gentleness tells us it is, what kindness, as these words tell us they are, what tenderness and mercy, these words that group themselves around gentleness. What, is that happening? Like, how do we see that displayed? Well, what do we see on the cross? He is hanging there for you. He, this is amazing to me. I've known this all my life, but for whatever reason this week, the Lord allowed me to see it or feel it in a new way. So I pray that it might work that way for you. But I, I saw something I can't like describe as if it's a new logic fact to me, but, but, but a sense of this that I, I don't feel like I, I quite sensed before in this way. Jesus is hanging there on that cross, not only forgiving you, but he's tasting every ounce of punishment for everything he forgives And it was all against him. Let, let me try. I, I tried to come up with an analogy to try to explain what, I'm, what, I, what I feel like I saw in a new way. Maybe, 
or at least I saw deeper than I have, and maybe it will fail, but let me try a little. Some of you can not just imagine this, but some of you have experienced this, but, but imagine being a husband or a wife and being cheated on by your spouse for years and years and years. And maybe if you don't have a spouse, you can just, if, if you've ever been betrayed by someone deeply or just hurt terribly by someone, someone's just really hurt you. You can put yourself in that slot. Maybe not to, not to hate them and not to hurt your own, you know, not, not to go through a terrible Sunday, but, but just for the sake of this, hopefully the Lord can use this. If you, if you can call that hurt to mind now. And, and if you can't, then, then just imagine being a husband or a wife and your spouse has for years committed adultery on you. And then imagine not only being called to forgive them, like not only having to go through the hard, terribly difficult work. And I, I know people who have had this happen to them where they have had, there were spouses whose spouses have had affairs. It is devastating. It's not something you ever, it's kind of like losing a child. It's, it's, it's more like you have to live with an amputated arm than something you just get over. So not only do you have to do that terribly hard work of having to absorb all the heartbreaking, traumatizing pain and rejection and hurt and refusing to justly avenge yourself over and over and over and again. But now, imagine not only all that, but in addition to that, Imagine actually having to be shamed and fully and justly punished for their adultery against you. Yes, the very sin that they themselves committed against you and you only is now placed upon you, the innocent victim. And you're cursed with all of your spouse's guilt and blame and then punished by almighty God. Justly and furiously. And maybe if the furiously rattles you, let's just say justly. Let's just say justly. Now, Imagine doing that all willingly. Intentionally, willingly, on purpose. Not being made to do it, not being forced to do it, not being captured and kidnapped to do it. No, doing it willingly because you love your spouse so much and because this was the only way to rescue them and to give them the greatest life possible eternally and to save them from the worst fate eternally possible. So you did all that willingly. Now, finally, magnify all that by billions more adulteries. Billions and and worse sins. 
all for millions upon millions of more souls loved and rescued. That is who Jesus is. That is what is in the heart of God Almighty. That is why he came on a donkey and said, I am gentle. You've got to see the truth about my heart. I've not come to deliver you from Rome. I've not come to simply deliver you from controlling religious leaders. I've not come to deliver you only and simply from temporary hard circumstances. I'll deliver you from all of that stuff. But to really deliver you, I've got to deliver you from your sins against me. And from my just righteous punishment for those sins. And so, in his gentleness, he refuses vengeance. In his humility, he absorbs all our punishment. In his tenderness, he forgives and heals and cleans and restores. Because that is what a gentle and lowly God does. That is how he treats you for your sins against him. I simply cannot conceive of a greater God than this. Can you? Like if he didn't have this, but he gave you riches, he gave you fame, and he gave you ease, and he gave you his friendship, but he didn't have this, don't you know he wouldn't be God? He, he exceeds all possible ideas about how wonderful and awesome Aditi could possibly be. This is the kind of God who makes me be able to say with some kind of zeal, all other pretenders to who God is are lies. I mean, no, no disrespect, but these other religions and these, these ideologies that deny God, they're lies. Because this has to be true. It's too beautiful. It's too glorious. So, behold your king, gentle, humble, riding on a coat, the foal of a donkey. So brothers and sisters, this is the Jesus who calls you to himself today. Again, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time, behold your king. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now Jesus says in Matthew 28, and he, he, he shows it in Zechariah 9 and in Matthew 21 on Palm Sunday, he, he, he doesn't apologize. 
He says, I have, a, I have a yoke for you. You know what a yoke is? It's something that, it's a big wooden crossbow, you, crossbar you'd put across an ox so you could drive the ox around the field where you wanted it to go. It was something the animal would wear so that the master can guide the animal. And Jesus says, I'm a king. I, I have a yoke for you. His gentleness and his humility, it doesn't mean that he pretends that he's not who he is. So he doesn't pretend he's not a master. He is your Lord. He is your God. He deserves our trust. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our following him. But here's how he says this actually is possible. Here's why he says this is actually good and doable, if I could put it in those colloquial terms. He says, my gentle heart and my humble heart will turn my yoke on you. It'll turn it into rest for you. My humility and my kindness and my tenderness will turn my leadership over your life into gentleness and kindness. And that will lead to real rest for your soul. He says, when you really give yourself to me, you'll find it becoming an easy yoke. Another synonym for easy is a kind yoke. And there's different reasons for this. He, part of it is because he bears it with us. He never gives us a yoke and then stands aside and says, carry this. No, he, he comes to live inside us so that he can carry it in us. But that is part, again, because he's gentle. He, he, he doesn't desire to see you on your own trying to bear the burdens in your life on your own. That's just not what a gentle, humble king wants for his people. He wants to come in and help and bear in you what would be impossible for you on your own. He's a gentleman. He's not a tyrant. But here's what's difficult. Many of us don't think of him easily this way. I don't easily think of him this way. I don't know what the soup is of, that, of the whys of that. Like I could blame, you know, my church growing up. I could blame my struggles with temperament, biochemistry. I could blame my parents. I could blame my sin. I could blame bad preaching. I, I, I could blame the devil. I don't know. There's, it's probably a mix of all those things. But many of us don't think of him as default. We don't knee-jerk towards him being gentle and humble. Because I think if we did, we would more readily take his yoke and run to him in our struggles instead of running from him or running to perform for him. That is, trust ourselves to, to get ourselves together before we collapse into his arms and turn to him for help when we can't bear up under what we're trying to bear up under. I find myself knee-jerking back to thinking of God as harsh and demanding. And that can lead me to hide from him and to run from him 
or to try to perform for him. Not out of love. But I don't think I'm alone. I think many of us don't think of him by default as gentle and humble. Dane Ortland, in his book, <clears throat> Gentle and Lowly, which is largely 13 chapters expounding this theme, he writes about our hesitation to give ourselves to our gentle Lord. <clears throat> Specifically about Jesus' call to, to take his yoke upon us. And here's what he says. I love this. He says, this is like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing. He's telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, but only to hear the man shout back, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is an added burden of a life preserver around my body. He says, that's what we're all like, confessing Christ with our lips, but generally avoiding deep fellowship with him out of a muted understanding of his heart. This risen Christ, after all, is the one whom, quote, God is highly exalted, unquote, at whose name every knee will one day bow in submission. Now he's explaining reasons why we are hesitant to want to take that yoke on. This is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose voice, Revelation tells us, is like the roar of many waters, who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, whose face is like the sun shining in full strength. This is all in the first chapter of Revelation. In other words, this is one so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot adequately be captured with words so ineffably or un impossible to understandingly <laughs> magnificent that all language dies away before his splendor. So Ortland's point is, we conceive of that God. It's, uh, I don't want to take this yoke upon me. What are you going to ask me to do? How long am I going to be able to hang in with you? How many rounds can I go in this match before I'm going to give up on you or you're going to give up on me? And, and there's, there's Ortland's right to recognize this tension. This Jesus who is gentle and humble is the Jesus who says unapologetically he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. There, there is mystery and enormity in who God is that is hard for us to comprehend. Because this king riding on a donkey is a king and he makes it clear in his word and his apostle made it clear that, that those who refuse his gentle heart will suffer his holy wrath. So many of us see that very clearly. We've been taught that very well. But for many of us, it is just as difficult, if not more so, to comprehend that same God is so gentle and so humble that he would say about his heart in all, in all the gospels, only that, my heart is gentle and humble. And then on Palm Sunday, if it says anything, he would want to say that he did not come to judge in wrath, but to save through gentleness and humility.
So this is the Jesus that he wants you to understand on Palm Sunday as he announces himself to you and to me. Ortland goes on, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Of course, maybe you don't think that way, but I really relate to this. The way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections. That's the way we normally think and startles us with those whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, his perfections include his perfect gentleness. It is who he is. It is his very heart. Jesus himself said so. We're coming to the end here, folks. I just want to give you a couple more thoughts. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin says of Jesus' self-confession of gentleness that in, in his confessing these things to you and to me, he has a motive. That Jesus has a goal when he says, I'm gentle and humble of heart. When he comes on Palm Sunday and sits on a donkey saying, I'm gentle. He's got a motive. He's trying to do something to you. Goodwin says he's trying to lure you in. We might say he is trying to, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm sorry about that distraction. An idea came to my head and it's just not going to work. But I, I'm trying to use words to communicate this idea that you would just understand that Jesus on purpose with great intentionality is telling you of his gentleness because he wants you and he's trying to draw you closer to him. Goodwin says, we are apt to think that he being so holy is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. It's temperament. You know, I told you that Mark's gospel includes this factoid that Matthew's gospel doesn't. That this young donkey that Jesus rode in had never been ridden on before. Some of you guys know about breaking in horses. But this was a wild, unbroken foal. And normally, we should imagine such a beast of burden bucking and rebuffing and resisting and neighing with all of his heart anybody who should seek to master him for the first time. Is that wrong, Michelle? Pardon? Depends on the animal. But I thought this was interesting. I, I mean, I, I, it wasn't original with me, but 
D.A. Carson made the point that whatever that horse's disposition, that little Colt's disposition, Colt's disposition, he had a master that day who was not like anyone else in the whole universe. The son of God had created this colt for this very purpose and he knew exactly what that little animal needed to be able to bear his king on that day. Christ did not only have the power to make this little colt. He had the power to tame this wild beast and give it the strength it needed to carry the burden of his Lord with grace. If he could speak, I think we would hear this lowly animal confess that he felt that the Lord he was carrying was an easy yoke and a light burden for him because his Lord had made it so. And so this Palm Sunday, brothers and sisters, as we close, I just want, I pray that you and I can hear Jesus coming to us again this morning as he does every morning and announcing to us afresh that he has come again to be your king, to be my king, that he wants our devotion. He wants us to yield to his kingship once again and to take up our cross and follow him. But even as he proclaims his unqualified kingship, he says to you, I am gentle. You can trust me. You can trust me. I I will live in you to give you my heart and my strength. I will spend my eternal life with my father every day interceding for you. And that intercession will be based on my blood poured out for you for all of your sins. This day, I will sympathize with all your weaknesses if you will trust me. This day, if you will trust me, I will be faithful to you to provide a way out of all your temptations. This day, if you will trust me, when you fall down, I will forgive you and cleanse you. This day, I am not a tyrant. I will not lord it over you. But I am gentle and humble. This day, I long to be compassionate to you. This day, I will complete, I will continue to complete the work that I started in you so that you will make it to the end. And and brothers and sisters, if we want to experience his gentleness, we have to listen to those promises every day. We have to hear them again and again. We have to have them ready because the other voices will come and accuse and assail and deceive and lie, telling us, did God really say? Is that really who God is? Telling us, you don't mean that much to him telling us he will not have mercy on you. There's no grace for you. You know those voices. So we've got to have his word. We have to listen to him and we have to talk to him. We have to say, Lord, help today. Help me again today. Because every day we need his help afresh and every day he's calling us to take his easy yoke and his light burden on afresh. But why? 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 Because he longs to show you who he is. He longs to show you his heart of gentleness and humility so that you can have hope and not die. 
in fear and not die in hopelessness. No, he wants you to have hope. You were created for hope. You were created in a spiritual way, we might say, you were created to succeed. I don't mean it and get that promotion, get that house, get that beautiful wife or car. I, I mean you were created to be more than a conqueror. Spiritually. To really know him. And to really flourish in him. And to not fail. But that your life would have meaning. And bring meaning to others. That's what you were created for. So may we go to him now to give ourselves to him afresh. Would you pray with me?